Who is Jesus? What is he doing? And what does it mean to follow him in the world today? My name is Matt Lewis. This is the Follower Podcast, and everyone is invited to the conversation. We've been speaking about the gospel. The reason it's called hope, question mark, Jesus, is because people are looking for hope. Uh, necessarily so, unless, I don't know where you've been if you don't know that. We're in a world that's in some desperate need of hope. People are struggling, people, and for all real and valid reasons, people are looking for hope. And the Christian um, conviction is that our story, the, the gospel, the good news that animates our faith is the place where you find hope um, more than any other place on the planet, in the universe, in all creation. But now if we're going to make that claim, if we're going to say we believe the gospel is all about hope, let me move this closer so that I don't have to stretch my thing. If we're going to say it's about hope, we've got to be able to validate that claim. Uh, we've got to ask the question, why does the gospel bring hope? Now, Classically, um, in a lot, well, let me not say classically, there are a lot of people who believe a version of the Christian gospel that amounts to what we called, uh, let me get this pen, that amounts to evac evacuation. Okay, so in other words, here is the world and you are on it. Okay, that's you. Your job is that you're, you're born, you live, and you die. Right? That's your 80, 90 years on this planet. At some point, you make a decision about Jesus. So you believe a thing that gets you into a club, basically. I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm just trying to lay it out. And then based on what you believe over here, you either then go to the good place or you go to the bad place, heaven or hell. Right? And so this is an escapist uh, way of seeing the world evacuation because uh, very often it's about escaping the world and finding yourself on a cloud somewhere with some baby angels and excessive amounts of Nutella. Are you with me? And so, so a lot of people have this kind of conception of what they think the gospel is. And so we have questions like, do you know where you're going to go when you die? And then people are motivated by fear to make a decision for Jesus. But what this does is it divorces, it pulls the story of Jesus out of its broader context. Um, and so what is that broader context? It's the whole story of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation um, and who Jesus is in that story, right? He's, he's in here, but he's powerful here because of who he is over here. And so when we understand the fullness of the cross and what Jesus has done in the gospel message in the context of the big story of God, all of the sudden it becomes far more compelling than just evacuating earth one day when we die. That there's some kind of passive spirituality that essentially makes us believe that we we prayed a prayer at some point. We did a sinner's prayer thing. So now we have Jesus as an eternal insurance policy. And now our job is just to wait, build our big walls high, gather everyone who thinks like us and acts like us, get a whole bunch of nice Christians around us, just manage our sin and try and not mess up until someday when we die and then we go somewhere else and that is the point to get out of here. So that's, uh, that's an evacuation theology. And it, what it does is it pulls Jesus out of the story. The way that N.T. Wright describes this is he says, uh, classically, we do two things. We either have a cross without a kingdom or we have a kingdom without a cross. The cross without a kingdom is what I'm talking about here. It's, 
ethereal, it's disembodied, it's, um, it's Plato philosophy, as in there's a big separation between the physical and the spiritual, and what really matters is the spiritual, also known as Gnosticism. So you can go to the temple, make your sacrifices to the gods, and then still have sex with the temple prostitute because your flesh and your spirit are so divided. These things are not consistent with a biblical worldview or Judeo-Christian spirituality. And so when we have the cross without the kingdom, what ends up happening? happening is we just end up with kind of Christian superstition. And so Jesus becomes a lucky rabbit's foot in a way, or not walking under a ladder or not opening an umbrella indoors. Jesus becomes the thing that we believe in to make us feel safe in a crazy world. But he doesn't feel uh, any life of purpose or meaning or anything like that. He just calls us to escape. And a lot of people, unfortunately, believe that kind of Christianity. And so then their faith uh, doesn't look like a lot more than attending church services and trying to be a good person. Um, and that's a travesty. That's an injustice because that's not the gospel. And so what we've tried to do is expand the story and start to understand why the gospel is better news than that and why it offers us more hope than just some kind of spiritual anesthetic to numb us to the pain of reality uh, because that's not what the gospel is trying to do. Does that make sense? If you're with me, Give me a thumbs up. And we've been doing that by uh, understanding who the Christ is and what actually happened on the cross. And so the Christ being the Messiah, the anointed one, Messiah, Christ, same word, just in different languages, Greek and Hebrew. Um, this anointed one who we see right from Genesis all the way through the story. And then Jesus magnificently is not less than the expectation of the Messiah, but he is more than that. So he takes that base expectation and he supersedes it, puts it on steroids. And it's very important that we understand that when Jesus comes declaring that he is Messiah, King of the Jews, he is doing that because what he wants people to understand is that's exactly who he is. And he wants people to know that he's here to bring a new kingdom, a new reality that has implication for this life as much as the next life, okay? And so we've been rooting the person of Jesus in history. Question, let's see if this is a question or just a comment in the wrong place. Comments in the round, okay. So Uncle Lysias put the comments in the comments and the questions in the questions, but we love you very much. Okay, now what can inevitably start to happen is, unfortunately, remember we're people of the pendulum. We also said this, right? So we're people who exist in the world of extremes. We move from one extreme to the other and that's not healthy. What we really wanna try and do is find the tension because the truth is in the tension. So if we've eliminated this one extreme of evacuation, uh, and we've, by placing Jesus in his historical biblical context, unfortunately what can start to happen is we start moving to this other extreme on this side. And this is the worldview of evolution. So let me write it. Evolution, also known as progressive humanism also known in some circles as the social gospel. So we move from this hyper-spiritual superstition, uh, everything's up on a cloud, has nothing to do with reality, is not grounded in the world, doesn't offer us much hope but to escape the planet. Uh, we enter, start pushing Jesus into his historical biblical context. And if we're not careful, we move to this side of the extreme where now this is about... Um, 
our job here is that, that things are just going to progressively get better and better and better and better and better and better and better. They're just going to keep evolving. Uh, the, the only thing that really matters is that we are doing things on, uh, in this planet, i.e. feeding the hungry, building houses, opening schools, making hospitals, doing justice, loving mercy. That, that stuff is all very, very important, but that becomes the pinnacle, and we start separating that from the supernatural elements of, of what actually inform and animate those things. Okay, and so we move over to this progressive space, this evolutionary space, this social gospel space. And so then all that starts happening is we lose sight of this, the kingdom that is coming and we're only about building a kingdom that is now. And so we stop believing in things like the devil uh, the reality of um, powers and principalities, rulers and authorities, these things just become analogous or, or allegorical. And so we start using the Bible simply as some kind of philosophical um, analogy or metaphor for our life. And we don't believe in real things like demons and angels and heaven and hell and uh, a world beyond the world, a supernatural reality. And so we get anchored into the, into the temporary and we start to try and solve eternal issues using temporary means. And uh, what ends up happening is we're trying to plug an, et an eternal hole with something that can't plug the hole. Makes sense? And so we end up burning out or we end up with uh, short-sighted solutions to the problem. Why? Because what is the real problem? Is the real problem hunger or homelessness? Or at the moment, is the real problem the COVID-19 virus? No, 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 no. These are, these are uh, physical manifestations of a supernatural animation. And what we know is that that animation is called the Satan. That, that animation is evil. The Bible uh, comprehensively deals with evil and that evil being transgression, iniquity, and sin. And that evil finds itself on the person of Jesus in the cross, concentrates itself on him, and does its worst to him on the cross. And there Jesus defeats it. Jesus crushes the head of the serpent, and evil is done with, ushering in a brand new kingdom that begins in the human heart and flows out, changing this world because... People in this reality are anchored in the future coming kingdom of Revelation chapter 21, the coming kingdom of God, his new heaven and his new earth, the city that's arriving here in the power of Jesus in the second coming, in the resurrection of the dead, which we profoundly believe in, which is what we're going to talk about today. So today, we're going to get, it's going to get weird. I just got to prepare you for that. If you are a person who lives in the land of reason and rationality, then you've loved this so far because this is anchoring us in history. And that was necessary because we needed to correct that overemphasis on escapism, right? On like, like uh, ethereal pie in the sky stuff. We wanted to land it on earth. But, but what I want you to know is that this life on this side of eternity is the temporary space, right? And it matters. What we do on this side of life matters. We're investing in the kingdom that's coming with what we do now. But ultimately, there is a coming kingdom, and that is ultimate reality. Jesus is ultimate reality. God is ultimate reality. And there's a curtain, a thin veil that we pull back, and we start to realize that there's, the, there's eternity written on our hearts. There's a supernatural reality that animates everything 
everything. And so in some ways, the physical life that you're living is sacramental. It's a signpost. It's pointing you to the more that, that, that gives substance and form and shape to absolutely everything that's going on. And that applies both to the light and to the darkness, to the good and to the evil. Does that make sense? If you understand what I'm saying, then start putting up your thumbs or start giving us some fire or some hearts or some stuff. Uh, so we're going to get crazy because we're going to start pushing into a little bit of the supernatural today. <laughs> because we need to, because we need to understand what has gone down. We're going to talk about things like resurrected dead people um, and, uh, and a life to come. It's a very exciting time. Okay, so, okay, Blaine's tracking with me. That's good. Uh, we got some hearts, we got some yeses. Sweet. So to begin this session, we're talking about the tomb, the empty tomb and how it's changed the world. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4. We're back there, right? We've been going back there every session. The reason is because this passage is the original apostolic gospel. It's what was handed down from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And uh, we read this in Paul's words. If you have your workbook, we're there on the page. If not, just try and follow along in your Bibles. Um, if It's going to be tricky, but just try to do your best. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, it says this. I passed on to you what was most important. In other words, what, hey Warren, how's it going, bro? So good to see you, man. Uh, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Okay, so Paul is saying two things. He's received something that he's handing over, like a relay race. A baton was given to him, and he's handing that over to the next people, next people, next people, next people. At some point, we receive that from those people, and our job is to hand over that thing. And this thing that we've been given is the thing that's most important. In other words, there's a lot of peripheral things that, can, that, that are going on, but even in the family of Christianity, right? The family of Christianity is a big table. And there's lots of weird aunts and uncles that are at that table, and you're one of them, right? And somewhere on this side of the table, we've got the conservative family, and somewhere on this side of the table, we've got the crazy family, and then we've got everything in between, but we're all at the table, okay? And so there's lots of stuff that we can disagree on, but what Paul is saying is that this is the stuff that's most important. This thing that's been handed over and then handed over that we received and must hand over, this is the stuff that's key. This is the stuff that's core. We've got to make sure we're landing in this stuff, right? And he says, this is what's most important, that Christ died for our sins, uh, just as the scriptures say, uh, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures say. And so uh, firstly, right there, the, all of this is based on just as the scriptures say. So the implication is that context is everything. In other words, there's a story that's been leading up to this good news. And if you remove it from the story, you remove it from its power. So what do the scriptures say? And that's what we've been trying to unpack these couple of days. Um, number two, that Christ died. And what we said is if we understand why the good news is good news we have to figure out who did the dying so it's not that someone died people were crucified all the time lots of people died but the fact is that the Christ died and if we want to know why that's powerful we've got to figure out who the Christ was and if you want to know that then when the podcast episodes are up go to session one and we do that pretty thoroughly um, the second thing we talked about is that this Christ died for our sins. And so we talk about what happened on the cross and how sin and evil uh, 
all of it culminated in the person of Jesus on the cross and there he defeated it all. Um, and that's really, really important because the cross is where Jesus wins the victory and establishes the kingdom that we then get invited into, which is why it's good news, right? We talked about the temple. We talked about how Jesus is not okay with just um, the appearance of religiosity, i.e. that we fill this temple, but we're still subjected to the powers of empire uh, that, that it stands in the shadow of. Jesus is not okay with that. And he's not okay when, we, when we, he's turning over the tables of doves and he's cursing fig trees and all that kind of stuff. If you don't understand, that, then when the podcast come out, go to session two. It's going to be really, really good. Today, what we want to talk about is the fact that the good news is about the fact that he was buried and he was raised from the dead. <laughs> okay, now this is where we lose people. I'm just going to be honest, because people are tracking all the way. They're like, yo, Jesus is cool. He's rad. They dig the history stuff. They like all the cool little like prophetic things that are buried in there. Uh, Okay, uh, Ariel, we got um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 4. And we're going to be jumping around a lot. I'll try and keep it as we go. Um, so people are tracking with all the cool history stuff and the fig tree stuff and the Banksy prophetic stuff. And people love that. It's like fireworks and guys are about it, right? And then we get to this part, and this is where we've got to anchor ourselves as the church. I really believe that. Where we get to this part that doesn't go down well in the minds of rationalistic people. And here's what this part is, that this Jesus who was crucified was raised from the dead. <laughs> he was dead, buried dead, and then he was raised from the, he was resurrected supernaturally from the dead. This is not a metaphor. This is not an allegory. This is not just, uh, this is not just cool philosophical stuff to make like self-help things to make you feel motivated in the morning. That is none of these things. This is not a fable. This is reality. This happened. There was a dead pre-existent Messiah man who was supernaturally conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, lived on this planet, walked around for 33 years, was murdered, assassinated for all the reasons that we pointed out. And then on the third day, supernaturally came back to life from the dead. And that changes everything. Are you with me? That's the reality. As real as the chair that you're sitting on, as real as the phone that you are looking at me through with a computer screen, as real as the headphones in your ear and this water that I'm drinking, Jesus really rose from the dead. That's how real that is. Okay. That, and we've got to get there. Why do we have to get there? Because it changes everything. Now, to try and get a sense of what's going, to, what's going on here, we're going to try and look at the different accounts of the story just to start off from the four angles of the Gospels. And why we're going to do that is because I think as we look at it from these different angles, we get a kind of full picture of that. Uh, if you're with me before we jump into this, give me some fire, give me some thumbs up, give me some hearts. Let's make sure everyone is still tracking. Uh, if you're turning in your Bible somewhere, we're going to start in Mark chapter 15, verse 39. If you have a workbook, then you're there in the workbook. Well done. Welcome. Uh, everybody's still here. Okay, Warren's got it. Thumbs up. Uh, anybody else? Mooney's there. Okay, we've got the fire. Okay, I love the fire. The fire is the preference. Blaine is there. Okay, cool. We're good. So we're going to Mark chapter 15, verse 39. I'm going to read it. I'm reading out of the ESV. If you have a different translation, it may uh, seem a bit different. Okay. Mark 15, 39 says this. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, this centurion said, truly, this man was the son of God. I'm going to avoid making comment as we go for the sake of time, but as we read each one, really focus in on stuff and try to notice what the different writers are bringing out about this moment. Bearing in mind, again, we're picking up from where we left off yesterday, right? So Jesus has been crucified. He's died. Psalm 22, that jewel, come on. And uh, now we're seeing what happens as he breathes his last. What happens, okay? In Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 to 54, if you want to go there. Again, it's in your workbooks if you have it. Matthew chapter 27, 51 to 54. It says this. At that moment, which moment? When Jesus died. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's twice we're seeing it from different angles. So we're pretty sure that happened. It was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. And the tombs broke open. I'm going to say that again. The earth shook. The rocks split. And the tombs broke open. Uh, <laughs> the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and they went into the holy city and they appeared to many people. That's the walking <laughs> land of the zombies. It's not that, it's beautiful. But they appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Luke chapter 23, verse 46 to 48 says this. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. John chapter 19, verse 30 to 36. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Psalm 22. There we go. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Uh, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, the people on either side of Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Banksy. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Banksy, uh, he who saw it has, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, that no one, not one of his bones will be broken. 
When I read these passages, uh, first of all, if you weren't here on the last episode, what I said is that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Um, and so much of his movement in Holy Week is him doing the prophetic. And what I mean by the prophetic is that uh, prophets from the Old Testament were really performance artists. Uh, they would do dramatic things in order to communicate eternal truths. And a lot like Banksy, the artist of our time, who paints things in order to communicate present realities and point to future realities, uh, prophets would do these kinds of things, walking around walls, lying in feces, doing all kinds of weird things. Jesus is pulling all these Banksy moments all along the way. He's pointing out, pointing, pointing, pointing. Everything is like a sign going, Messiah, 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 Messiah. I'm him. It's the kingdom. It's arrived, etc., etc., etc. So much so, even in his death, <laughs> even in his death, prophetic Banksy moves happening all over the place. Um, what stands out most to me from these texts, uh, here, here's what is so powerful. Uh, we live in, simultaneously, we live in two realities. We live in the fading temporary, which is animated by the eternal supernatural, Right? Um, I know Ariel, it's so good, right? It's not mine, it's Tim Mackey. He's so smart, I love him. Um, we live in the fading temporary or the transient temporary. In other words, as things are today and as things are on this side of eternity is not how they will always be. Uh, this is not ultimate reality. That's what's important. There is a greater reality, a reality that is more substantial, more full, more wide, more high, more deep than the reality we currently experience. Jesus calls it life and life to the full, uh, eternal life that is not just eternally long, but eternally substantive. There's a substance to it, deep and wide. There's, a, there's something that Jesus is inviting us into on welcome to the party that goes far beyond anything we experience on this side of eternity and so we're simultaneously living in these two worlds the bible talks about the heavens and the earth and everything under the earth right um in revelation john has this image and for a while he's taken up into this other reality that's happening even while he is on the island of patmos well and when he gets into the reality it's crazy and there's freaking angels with faces and beasts and seraphim and cherubim and elders bowing down and the lamb and all that stuff and so he gets a vision of a world behind the world and that's no different now than what it was then but what we're seeing on the crosses whatever is happening on the cross of Jesus Christ is so powerful that somehow the eternal spills over into the temporary it's as if for a moment the curtain is torn right what curtain the holy of holy curtain so back in the day Israelites in the wilderness God gives Moses the blueprints to the tent of meeting now this is going to blow your mind just a little quick one I got this from Tiana Blast that's free for you that's going to come now if you haven't heard this in the tent of meeting is this place called the holy of holies this holy of holies is a perfect cube and uh, well this holy of holies yeah it's a space and it houses the presence of God okay and it's a cube this space and the high priest high priest high priest Banksy, high priest goes in there to make sacrifice for the nation before God so that they can be right for him, okay, that holy of holies, there is a curtain that separates the holy of holies from the world, that side of eternity from this side of eternity, and only people who are worthy can cross that curtain, when Jesus dies, the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, i.e. man 
didn't do this, God did this. The curtains torn in two from top to bottom and all of a sudden the Holy of Holies, what's on that side of eternity spills out onto what's on this side of eternity. Eternity starts flooding the streets. Uh, earthquakes start happening. Dead people start rising from the grave. There's a moment where the lines are blurred and something so powerful happens on the cross that it shakes the eternal realm. And there's a, there's a spillover. And for the first time, hardened Roman centurions are standing before all of this. Death is not what moves them. They kill people all day long. If you're an accountant, the way that you type keys is the way that Roman soldiers murdered humans. They are not, they're not moved by the death of people. What they're moved by is the power of Christ. That's what they move by. And so they're standing there in front of this crucified Jesus, nature, beautiful human. And they are saying, surely the power of this, this must be the son of God. This must be the son of God. And so there's a conversion moment, not based on how smart Jesus was, but how compelling his life and death were, right? There's a little, there's a little nugget for you if you want to be an evangelist right there. Are, are you with me? More than that, this tearing of the curtain says that it's not only the high priest that now comes into the presence of God. What this means is now all access passes have been granted to the whole human race. You got VVV, VIP, brother, all the Vs. You got all of them because of what Jesus has done. The curtain is pulled open and you can now push in. You are welcome. You're invited. The declaration of the New Testament that God is Jesus shaped. Jesus has made a way. And the divide, the wall of hostility, the thing that separated has been done with in the cross of Christ. And now you, my friend, no matter who you are, are invited into friendship with the living God. That's what happened on the cross. It spilled over, but it gets better because <laughs> the Holy of Holies, right? The cube. Fast forward to, to Revelation chapter 21. We're given the dimensions of the new city of God. Okay, and when you go look at those dimensions, the cubits by cubits by cubits, the new coming kingdom, here's what you will find. It's a cube <laughs> on the cross of Jesus. The new heaven and the new earth, the kingdom of God was established. Is it fully realized? No, 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 no. It is now and not yet, but it was established. In the tearing of the curtain, Jesus has said that something new has now been planted in the ground and it will come to full fruition in a moment. But the cube, the, the holy of holies in the tent, the, the curtain being torn and the new city of Jerusalem, the presence of God, the reality of Jesus established in a moment on the cross. Is that or is that not so freaking good <laughs> it's so good it's so good um here's <laughs> yes fire all the things loving it uh mark chapter 15 verse 42 to 47 if you want to go there um so jesus dies jesus dies jesus dies how do we know that jesus really 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 died how do we know he died uh well, first of all, most people just died from the flogging, okay? So the fact that Jesus even survived the flogging, that's already a win. Then he gets up the hill, and now he's having his hands nailed to a cross. The amount of blood loss in that, that's, that's already pretty serious. Uh, he hangs there for a long period of time, and he's hanging. And so the Jews, 
the Romans come to break his legs because the Jews are saying, hey, listen, it's Sabbath. We've got to get on with our, our religious festival. Isn't that the most ironic thing? These guys are being so obedient to the Sabbath in order to honor their God, even while they kill him on a cross. And doesn't that sound a lot like what we do sometimes? Anyway, and so they come to break his legs, but then because it's a Banksy move, they don't break his legs. And so they take a spear and they pierce it into his side. And when they pierce it into his side, out comes the separation of blood and water. And here's what we know about that from a physiological perspective, is that what happens when he, they pierce the side is they pierce a sac around the heart called the pericardium. Okay, this is what doctors will tell you. And when people have died, what happens is there is, there is a separation between the plasma and the blood in that space and so that's a sign of death and so when the spear goes into the side of Jesus and punctures the pericardium and we have the water and the blood that comes out there's a lot of banks here going on there but at the very least what's happening is that's evidence that the plasma and the blood is now separated and that Jesus is in fact dead that's just some evidence that Jesus is dead we'll get to more in just a second so then isn't that that's interesting right yeah yeah so Jesus is fully dead he's not he's not in a coma as some people would say he hasn't just dehydrated as some people would say uh, so because if he didn't really die then maybe his resurrection isn't such a big deal maybe he just really passed out <laughs> This is not a marathon, people. He wasn't. He didn't have a strenuous gym session. Okay, he didn't pass out. The man died. D E D, dead. Super dead. The deadest of all the dead things. Dead. 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 And so, so we know that Jesus was dead. Then we go to Mark chapter fifteen, verse forty-two to forty-seven, um, and I'm trying to get to why the empty tomb changes the world, and we're going to get to that in a moment. Uh, here we go to where Jesus is buried. Okay. All the fire. I know it is fire. It's so good. And when evening had come, we're in, uh, if you didn't catch that, Mark chapter 15, 42 to 47. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. I love that phrase. He took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that, she, that he should have already died because usually what they would do is leave the guys up on the cross until they suffocated to death, until the crows came and ate them, etc. But because it was the Sabbath, they wanted to hush, hurry things along. And so it was interesting that Jesus had already died. And so summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. So the Jews are coming saying, Jesus is already dead. Pilate's not so sure that he's already dead. So he calls a centurion. He's got no invested interest in Jesus being dead or not dead. This is another guy on another day, right? Except uh, some of those centurions saw that this was Jesus, the son of God. So I don't know what he's thinking. But anyway, um, and he asked the centurion when he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Okay. So it's not just the disciples of Jesus who are saying um, that Jesus is dead. It's not just Joseph of Arimathea coming and pulling a fast one over Pilate, right? There is a Roman centurion that now corroborates the witness of Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that he had been cut, that had been cut out of the rock. And then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, saw um, where he was laid. Okay, so two women outside the tomb, the two Marys looking in and they see where Jesus is laid. Jesus is put into the tomb and the stone is rolled away. 
uh, over, okay? It was closing the tomb, big stone. If that's not enough evidence uh, that Jesus was properly dead, we get to um, the guard at the tomb, Matthew chapter 27, verse 62 to 66. Matthew chapter 27, verse 62 to 66. It says this, The next day, that is the day of the preparation, uh, the chief priests of the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, in other words, they think he's dead, um, after three days I will rise. Okay, so, so the Pharisees, who really didn't like Jesus, watched everything that, that was going down and they seem to think that he's really dead. So their concern is not that he's not dead, their concern is that him being dead, something else is going to happen. What are they concerned about? Um, therefore, because they know that Jesus made this claim that he's going to rise again after three days. So again, they don't, they're not concerned that he's not dead. They saw the man die. Everybody, everybody who was there was pretty aware that Jesus was fully dead. Um, but they also knew that Jesus had said that after three days he will rise again. So then they say, let's try and avoid anything that happens. They say, therefore... Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and then tell the people he has risen from the dead. And then the last fraud will be worse than the first. Okay, so that's what they're saying. They're saying it was already a problem that this dude came declaring that he was the king of the Jews. But now we've killed him, so that's done with. That's good. So now he's in the tomb. That's cool. But here's our concern. His disciples are going to come and steal his body. Then they're going to start making claims that he rose from the dead. And that's going to be even worse for us than, that, than the stuff he was saying before. Because if he did raise, get raised from the dead, big, big problem for us, which is what we'll get to in a second. So then how do we know that that's exactly what, how do we know that that's not what happened, right? Because this is what a lot of people will say. Sure, I can believe that Jesus died and crucified, and then I can believe he was put in a tomb, but then how do we know that the disciples just didn't come and steal the body? Okay, well, here's how we know. Um, Pilate said to them, you have a God. I'm giving you the God. Now, just to be clear, a God in this sense is about nine highly trained Roman soldiers. Nine, nine highly trained Roman soldiers around the entrance of a hole cut in a rock that's been sealed by a big stone, that's been covered by a big stone. And it's not just covered. Then he says, go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the, the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So it's not only that the stone was rolled over the tomb, it's that that stone was then further sealed. And then a guard of nine highly trained Roman soldiers on shift probably were now covering this tomb, standing in front of it. Good luck trying to get past these guys. So if you want to say that they stole the body, I mean... Okay, but then they got to get past these nine soldiers. You don't think Pilate's going to hear about that? You don't think everyone else in the town is going to hear about that? A bunch of dead Roman soldiers, nine of them. That's a lot in Roman occupation, where if a Roman soldier asked you to carry his bag one mile, you didn't say no because that would have repercussions. You think that these guys are just going to be able to go kill nine Roman soldiers and nobody's going to know about it? Are you with me? Okay, if you're with me, just give me some, give me something, give me something. I want to make sure we're all still tracking. Okay. Then we move ahead to Luke chapter 24, verse 1 to 12. 
Okay, Tian's got it, Gabs has got it, we got some hearts. And I know you're like, okay, get to the point, we're getting to the point, but I want you, I'm trying to build a case, okay? So remember, it's not that someone's died, it's that who did the dying. Um, when Jesus died, it's not just that he forgave your sins and my sins, that's part of the story, but it's bigger than that. It's that Christ was exalted as king of the universe. And uh, we see the reaction in the physical uh, because of what's happening in the eternal. And dead people are coming out of tombs. Why? Because a new kingdom is established and because the way is open. Come on. Um, that we know that Jesus really was dead. Okay, and we know that he was put in this tomb and we know that nobody came to steal the body. Further evidence of that is that 11 of the 12 disciples were martyred for their faith. Right? If they had stolen the body, then in that moment when they're about to be killed, all they would have to do is say, well, there's the body. There's the body. Okay, it was all a joke. We're done. We're finished. If the Romans had taken the body, why would they want to reinforce the idea that Jesus really is king after his resurrection? It makes no sense. Are you with me? So everything points in the direction that Jesus really was dead. I think we got a question here. Plus, they ran away in the garden. Uh, when you say evolution, you're actually not referring to biological evolution, but social evolution. Some Christians re reject the biological theory. Yes, Ben, that is true. I'm not referring to biological evolution. I'm referring to um, the ev progression the evolving of an idea. If you want to read this, go read Futureville. Uh, fantastic book. I always forget the author, but he kind of lays it out pretty beautifully for us. Um, plus they ran away. Absolutely, they ran away. And we'll talk about this in a second. So Jesus is in the tomb. Stone's been rolled over the, the entrance, been sealed, and a guard of nine Roman soldiers. That thing's on lockdown. You think you're on lockdown? That's on lockdown. No, you're welcome. Um, so that was quite funny, actually. I didn't, that wasn't scripted. High five, high five, Matt. Good job. Um, now we're in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Um, <clears throat> says this, but on the third day of the week, Resurrection Sunday is on its way. Come on. Uh, at early dawn, they, who's they? The woman. I don't want to, oh man, I so want to get into this, but I don't have time. There's a reason that Jesus turned over the dove tables in the temple when he was talking about his kingdom that was coming. And, there's, and, and part of that is because the kingdom of empire tends to oppress the little man. The kingdom of empire is all about upward mobility and the few at the top exercising power over the, the, the many at the bottom, right? The kingdom of, of empire, the Roman, Babylonian, current world empires that are opposed to the kingdom of God that has, is invading our world. Um, it, it's always about the few and the powerful, but Jesus is always about raising up the weak and the lowly. And this is why when the two get next to him, they say, can we sit on your left and on your right? He says, the Gentiles lord it over people in their kingdoms, but the kingdom of God is not like that. Because in the kingdom that's coming, the, the greatest among you will be your servants. So the whole kingdom is about this downward mobility, self-sacrifice, getting under and then lifting up because that's the mechanisms by which the heaven, the kingdom of heaven is established in the world. And so here we have two women, two, oh, if there's any lady power in the house, can I please get some ladies bringing some fire? Because Jesus champions 
woman. Jesus loves women. Jesus is about the woman. Jesus wants to raise women up. Why? Because women have been historically oppressed. Jesus is, is about equality and equity. Jesus is pushing women who have been marginalized and subjugated for the long time, for the longest time in patriarchal societies. There's a reason that there's a woman at the tomb and not a man in the story. It's a powerful, powerful declaration. We should think about that. That's my little rant. That's for free for you ladies. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, just I'm with you in solidarity. You guys got this. Keep doing the things. Love everything that you're doing in the world. Um, <clears throat> so these women, they come and uh, they find, they went to the tomb and they take in the spices that they had prepared um, and they found the stone rolled away. Okay. Hey, Will, Bussy, yes, here for it. Fire, Gabs. Got it. All, this, all the lady power in the house. Okay. So they find the stone rolled away. Let's just talk about which stone. Okay. The stone that was guarded by nine highly trained Roman soldiers and sealed and really, really big covering the tomb. It's a, <laughs> it's a big deal. The stone is rolled away. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Apparel. I don't even know how to say that word. They're really, really shiny. Um... Heidi, how's it going, man? Um, and as they, were, as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground, and the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? How do we know that these aren't just normal people? I mean, they're dazzling and white, but how do we know they don't just have really oily skin on a sunny day? <laughs> You're welcome. We know this because of the response of the woman, because every time in the Bible, when angels appear in scripture, what is it that the angels say? Fear not, fear not, because the immediate response to the appearance of the eternal breaking through into the temporary is one of overwhelming awe, one of like face down, oh my gosh, I can't even look directly. And then there is this declaration of the nature of God that's always been declared through the whole story of the Bible. Fear not, fear not, it's okay. It's okay, God is Jesus shaped. It's fear not, fear not. And so they have the same response. They're frightened. They bow their faces down to the ground. And these men then say to them, and this is the power line of this whole story, why do you look for the living the living among the dead. He, Jesus, is not here, but he, Jesus, has risen from the dead. <laughs> and remember, he told you this. This is not a surprise to Jesus. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. It shouldn't be been a surprise to the disciples. They should have all been camped out there in the front of the tomb on the third day because Jesus had clearly said that when they go up to Jerusalem that he would be crucified. Uh, so these women then run back to the disciples and they tell them, and then in verse 11, their words appeared to the disciples to be an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, Peter rose, and he ran to the tomb. In other words, I don't think, I don't think Peter is a marathon athlete, so they couldn't have been far from the tomb, 400, 500 meters or so. They ran to the tomb and he stooped and he looked in and he see the, saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus is, Jesus is alive. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. So, so on the cross, he defeated death. Three days later, he rose again. He's alive. I don't know what else to tell you. He's alive. It's an empty tomb. Nobody stole the body. Uh, we figured out that he was properly dead. We figured that out. And you can go read this all over the place in the Bible. Three days later, 
the body's not there. <clears throat> Come on. And you're going, Matt, that's so cool. That's nice. Like, that's a cool story. And let's hypothetically say that everything you've said is true. Who cares? <laughs> Which I think would be the right question, right? Um, I, think that's the, I think that's the best question ever. Why does a Messiah who was born into the world as, as an, a, a, a divinely conceived God-man, who then walked around on the planet for 33 years, who then was crucified and destroyed evil, as we've looked at, comprehensively destroyed evil, and then made a way for the Father through that destruction of evil, uh, and reframed our conceptions of God through the destruction of that evil, and invites us now into intimate friendship with the creator of the universe through the construction destruction of that evil, and then being dead was then put in a grave and we've talked about how he didn't accidentally stumble out of that grave but is now alive what does this have to do with my life in 2020 2020 we are in 2020 2020 wow that's a lockdown life for you right there julia armstrong you're a wonderful human eh just how's it um what does that have to do with my life today in the midst of a coronavirus why is this hope for a searching world right now. And that's where we've been wanting to get and that's where we're gonna get. And I'm hoping that you're gonna see it. So to understand that, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again, okay? We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Why do we keep coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is what we call the original apostolic gospel, okay? It is what Paul has said. It's not in my words, we're gonna read it again. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. That's very, very powerful. You received what I was teaching. You didn't just receive it. You made it the foundation of your life. You stand on it and by which you are being saved. In other words, this message that I'm pe preaching to you, it is your salvation. The question, of course, is what are you saved from and what are you saved for? And that's what we're trying to answer in this whole experience. If you hold fast to this word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Uh, this is the echoes of Jesus and the sower of the seeds, that some people receive the word, but then this word gets choked out, drowned out, stolen away. And what Paul is advocating here is that he's given this message, this gospel that is good news. And it is both an ability to save you and it is firm ground on which you must stand. But at the same time, you've got to hold fast on it so that you didn't believe in vain. How many people believed in vain how many people at some point went this is good news and then the realities of life COVID-19 happened and we loosed our grip on the one thing that would give us stability amidst the storm and all of a sudden a belief that was so strong ends up being in vain at the time when we need it most this friends I didn't plan this but get this this is not a time for you to loose your grip on the one declaration and truth that is a foundation for your life and the salvation of your soul when the chaos comes you need to plant your roots deeper not pull them up and try and find a higher ground in the midst of the storm keep your feet on the rock because Jesus is going to carry us through so this one truth that I'm trying to help you understand today this is the thing that you need to be anchoring your life on this is hope in the storm if you believe me can I get some hearts some amens some fires to you and Scott is ahead of the game let's get involved people I need to know you're alive out there anybody 
So we got preachy there. Shoo, that was some good stuff, man. This stuff matters. Don't pull your roots up from the rock. Stay anchored, stay anchored, stay anchored. Uh, preach the word, come on. Don't be brief with pushing in. Come on, Ariel. That's what I like to hear. If anybody else is with Ariel, if we're, if we're on this train, if we're loving this life, give me some thumbs up. Just uh, help me know that I'm not uh, just throwing words out into the internet on the line there. Help me know that we were all together in this. <clears throat> yes, please. Blaine, we're in it. Hearts, good stuff, good stuff, good stuff. Okay, so I genuinely didn't, even, I wasn't even going to read verse one, but we read it and there you are. Okay, uh, there you are. So you're welcome. So he's talking about this gospel and then he goes on to the next in verse three, he says four. In other words, uh, so all of this stuff is the reason for this stuff. Makes sense. And, and he says here, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance. And we've gone over this time and time again, but I want to, I want to like massage it into you, right? I want to, I want to make sure you get it. I delivered to you as first importance as, in other words, this is the most important thing. And uh, this is the kind of anchor thing. And there's lots of scope for difference in the family of the church, but this is the one thing we've got to anchor ourselves in. Uh, we don't want to lose our way when it comes to this, right? Um, I delivered to you in a relay race what I received from others, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then, so if you weren't sure that he really was raised, we carry on going, verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive while he's writing this, though some have fallen asleep, not died, because Jesus has changed everything. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. If you needed any more evidence that Jesus is not in the grave, there's six big reasons <laughs> that he's not in the grave, because he's, he's got a witness can I get a witness? Jesus has a couple, right? It, guys, I just don't know what else to tell you. He's alive. He's so alive, right? Then he goes on to say, uh, and this is where we start answering the question. Well, what does this mean for me? Why is this hope for me right now in 2020, right? Leroy, hi, welcome. You're beautiful. It says this, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Uh, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. In other words, if you, if you just want Jesus as some kind of spiritual guru, some kind of philosophical personal self-help guide, you are emptying the gospel of its power. Because if Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, then our faith is actually in vain. We are even found to be misinterpreting God or misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, that victory we spoke about on the cross, we know that that really happened because Jesus walked out of the grave. If he didn't walk out of the grave, no victory, you're still dead in your sins, and there is no hope of Jesus rehumaning the world, okay? Resurrection is how we know that that's true. Um, verse 18 
then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope, only in this life we are of all people most pitied. That's what I was talking about with that social gospel, that uh, progressive humanist agenda that is just about the side of eternity. Take away all the weird super spiritual stuff. Let's just, let's just turn Jesus into a nice social activist. That's not who he is. If we only have hope for this life, we're to be pitied because he has invited us into an eternal story. There's a resurrection on the horizon right um, but in fact so Paul says all of that is rubbish this is what the truth is Christ has been raised from the dead and now listen to this he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as <laughs> this is about to get loud this is about to get loud just brace yourself for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die stop Genesis chapter 1, what does it mean to be human? Imago Dei. But that humanity was compromised by comprehensive evil brought into the world by the Satan. And so we missed the mark of being human. That's what it means to have sinned. And we've fallen from that and we live in the spiritual death of that sin. That's what Adam has given us. That's what's been handed over. And that's what you and I are born into in that sense. The curse is what the Bible calls it. So by one man all died. But, and here's where it gets crazy. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. So for as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Which ones? Those ones in heavenly places that we read about yesterday, yes? For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Remember, this is the original apostolic gospel. This is not a later invention. This is the first things that the early church believed. Under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is, ex he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, Jesus is still reigning with God. Uh, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. And here's where it ends, that God may be all in all. The end goal of this whole thing, the point of the gospel is that God will be glorified. So there's a kingdom coming. There's a coming city. The, it, the glory of God is its light because it has no, it doesn't need a sun. The glory of God is, it's all, the point is that God may be all in all. What's, what stopped us from being human? What destroyed the Eden state that lie in the garden that we could be like God, that we could be all in all. But Jesus has redeemed everything and he's given new life. He is the first fruits of many. He walked out of the grave, defeating death. And then we come behind him. We are born into that reality the first Adam and we are the sons of that that last Adam and so now we get to be a part of that story that ends with all things being God all in all can you see it that's some good news right now so what that means is even in the midst of COVID-19 your hope is not gone because your hope is not in this life because there's a resurrection on the horizon because he's the first fruits of many sons firstborn among many uh, it carries on going. Verse 42. Verse 42. Here we go. Uh, 
And I'm just really reading the Bible, guys. And I know I have to land the plane, but this is important because you've got to ask yourself, what does the resurrection have to do with me? Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Okay, that's you. That's me. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a national, natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 47, the first man was born from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of the dust. So are also those who are born of the dust and is the man of heaven. So are also those who are born of heaven just as we have been born the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven in other words Jesus defeated death came out of the tomb in a resurrected body that is now eternal. And our future hope is that we, like him, will inherit the same kind of resurrected body, born of the spirit, not born of the dust. That's our future hope. And that future hope affects how we live our present reality. Because, Paul says, we endure all these Latin momentary afflictions because of the eternal weight of glory that we will inherit in Christ Jesus. He came out of the tomb and the empty tomb changes the whole game because death is not the end of the story it's right here it says here i tell you this brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable verse 53 for this perishable body must be put must put on the imperishable and this mortal body body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written listen carefully death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting verse 58 therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That verse is a game changer because here's what it's saying. (laughs) That death is done, it's over. Jesus has won the victory. We put on immortality. We put on eternity in Christ. And we'll talk about that in just a second. That that because of what Jesus has done, we are invited into a way of being in the world um, that that has defeated death and its fear. It has no sting. But then I love the response. Therefore, my beloved brothers, verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what this does not produce in us in some, is some kind of passive spirituality that says, well, we'll just wait till we die and then one day we'll be resurrected. It's not the same as evacuation. It says because we know there is a coming kingdom and because we know we have this future hope of resurrection and because we can start to live into that reality now by the power of the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about, we, we plant ourselves in that reality. We become immovable in that reality and we start abounding in the work of God because we know that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. In other words, the things that we do in Christ on this side of eternity, just like us, will in some way, I don't know how, contribute to the coming kingdom. Our work is not in vain. And so in the midst of COVID-19, we get to be a people of hope because we know that as C.S. Lewis says, and not to be insensitive, all that's really happened is there's one more way to die. 
right? But death was always coming. But for those who are in Christ, we have hope because death has lost its sting. Death is not the end. And so our treasure is where our heart is and our heart is in our Christ. And so because we have that hope in eternity, we can radically reframe and transform the temporary. Does that make sense? If you're with me, give me some high fives and some uh, thumbs up and some different things. I want to make sure that everybody's tracking. It's so good. It's so good. Okay, we've got to fast forward. Um, so I'm going to skim over a whole bunch of things. And uh, then we're going to land the plane. Okay. So the question is, that's so cool, Matt. Uh, what do, we, what do we do with that? <laughs> how, how do we apprehend that? How do we enter into that? What do we do with that, right? And I would say the first thing is that we have to enter in by faith. So if you come with me to Romans chapter 4, and you, and you get all the way down to uh, verse 20, uh, let's, go, let's go from verse 19. <clears throat> So Paul here, he's talking about the saving power of faith. Okay, so uh, death, where is your sting? Come on, that's amen, 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 amen. So Paul is saying, uh, he's talking about the saving power of faith. And again, it's not saving in the sense that you get your ticket, that you go into eternity, but saving in the sense that you are now living in the kind of reality that transforms the way you live in the temporary and carries with you into the eternal space. Make sense? And when you listen to what the Bible is saying, it is more crazy than any sci-fi movie you've ever seen in your life. I mean, I'm not apologizing for what's in Scripture, but when you read Scripture, it's insane. It's crazy. That's what, that's, that's, we mustn't shrink back from that. This, this whole thing is completely out of our frame of reference, right? And so the question is, how do we believe that? And I think the answer is similar to what, to what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter, chapter 4 here. Because there's this guy, Abraham. He's 100 years old. He's got a wife who's barren. And the, and the father meets him and makes a contract with him, an agreement with him, that he's going to give him a son, uh, or he's going to give him an heir. And then through this, there's going to be a whole nation of people through whom the Messiah will come. And that through this, there will be a blessing to the nations. And then it says, Abraham believed by faith. Why did he need faith? Because everything in the practical pointed against the realization of that promise. It says here in verse 19, it says, um, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. In other words, you can be sitting in the midst of a moment like Corona, like you're in the world right now, just in general, human beings always living on this side of eternity. We can hear something like the Messiah was crucified, defeating evil, and is now raised from the dead, having destroyed death altogether. And we can look at our situations around us and, and what can end up happening is our faith can be weakened and we can go like, man, I'm not sure I can, I can buy that. I'm not sure I can believe that. But that's not Abraham's example because there in verse 20, Paul says, 
Um, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was deliverer for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So in other words, here's what he's saying. Moses is the example. Uh, Abraham is the example. And in the same way that Abraham didn't allow his external temporary fading reality to deter him and take his eyes off the greater eternal reality of God's intention, so too for us as we sit in the midst of this moment and we hear about the incredible, uh, ridiculous promise of a resurrected Jesus and everything around us maybe not pointing in that direction, but we like Abraham root ourselves by faith in that conviction and we say this is my reality this is what's true for me I have set my eyes on the eternity I'm a person of hope my hope is anchored in the eternal realm I'm a person of the kingdom I'm a citizen of heaven is what the Bible calls me and I now choose to live in the temporary as if I'm already a citizen of the eternal and I know and I believe no matter what is going on around me that death is defeated in Jesus and because of that because of what Jesus has opened up for me I'm able to enter into a relationship with God and eternal security and a resurrected life in his new heaven and his new earth we will rule and reign with him forever and that future that future destination changes my present reaction to everything that's going around me do you see it if you're with me give me some high fives Aaron hello oh, man okay and then we're going to quickly fast forward through this and uh, end it here and so you go okay cool I I can have faith I can buy that. I can believe that. I can do that. I can plant myself in that. Hi, Lily. How's it going? Um, what do I do? So you're going, Matt, as you've been speaking, for some reason, and I can't explain to you why, something's stirring in my heart, and I believe that this is true. How do I respond to this? So I, be I believe there's a will behind the world. I believe there's an enemy of my soul, but I also believe there's a creator and a savior of my soul. And I believe that this Jesus died on a cross, defeating evil and rehumaning me, inviting me to a friendship with him where I can live in relationship with him and enter into that Imago Day space. I believe, Matt, that the wage of sin, that is death, has been defeated in Jesus Christ. And that as I enter into relationship with him, I, I need never worry about that again. That my future is secure in him. And that means that I import that future reality into this present world and I start living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven right now revealing the kingdom of God that has been deposited in the death and, and resurrection of Jesus in the midst of this eternal reality and I believe as Paul says that my labor my labor here is not in vain that somehow as I steward my little patch of earth that God has given me and I start to make it look more and more like his kingdom that that somehow echoes into his eternal realm I believe all that Matt what do I do now how do I say yes to this thing? Is there anybody who's like, yeah, I want that. I want, to, I want you to answer that question because I'm ready to say yes. I'm ready to cross that line of faith. I'm ready to believe in this good news. I'm ready to be with Abraham and plant myself in this ridiculous declaration, even though maybe everything around me would say that it's not true. I somehow, maybe by the power of the Spirit of God, believe that it's true. And I want to say yes to that. How do I do that? Is there anybody right now who's listening to this and going, that's me. And I want to know how to say yes to this thing. Uh, if that's you, put up your hand, do a thing.
give me some hearts, give me some fire, be like, I, I want to know, I want to know, I want to know. I want to make sure we're there. By the way, it's so good to see you, Aaron. So good to see you, uh, Lily. Hey, is that you? So good to see you, man. We got some hearts. We got some fire, Blaine, hearts. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Okay. I'm going to land this quick. Uh, if that's your question, I want to take you to Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 37 to 41. Because the truth is people have been asking that ever since they heard this amazing story. And there's a beautiful response to it. Um, and here it is. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 41. Uh, this comes to us at really Pentecost, the, the, the birth of the early church in some ways. Peter, under the power of the Holy Spirit, has got up and he's preached the gospel. Basically what I've been speaking to you now, he's been, he preaches this, uh, his version of that, right? And here's what it says. It says, when they he heard this, they, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And maybe that's you right now. As you've been hearing this, you've been cut to the heart. And your question is, brothers, what shall we do? <laughs> and I want to give you the answer of Peter here in Acts chapter 2, 37 to 41. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every single one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Three things that, that is our response. So you would say to me, Matt, right in the beginning, you told me the gospel was not about me. It, it, it affected me, but it was about Jesus. And I want to say now is the point where this good news that's all about Jesus lands personally in your life and calls for response. And I want to say no gospel preaching is real gospel preaching unless it calls us to response. It's supposed to, this good news then should cause us to do something with the news. When you get the news in a couple of days time that lockdown is over, you're going to respond to that news. You're going to go outside. I've just given you the news that there's a world behind the world. There's an enemy of your soul that's dehumanized you, but there's a savior of your soul who wants to rehumanize you, who's reframed your view of God and is saying, come out of hiding, come out of shame. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. He's, he's defeated the evil that you were a slave to. He now makes a way for you to be a slave to the spirit. He's inviting you into resurrection life, uh, death is done. Um, you are now able to say that in your future, you will be with Jesus, who was the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Your death is done. You will have resurrection life with him. You also now will know that that resurrection life in the future changes the way you live in the present. And as you live it out in the present, you start revealing, you become ambassadors of that kingdom, reconciling this world with the next. You're saying, I believe all that. I want all that. How do I get in on that story? How do I say yes to the gospel? Here's what Ariel is saying. We underestimate just how good the good news is, man. It's the most beautiful, freeing, restoring, life-giving thing. Amen. Fire from Tion. You want to say, how do I get involved? Here's the three things. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Repentance is simply this. You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Paul tells us. Let's unpack that. It means that you are now saying you're going back to the Eden Garden state and you're reversing the curse. 
What happened on the tree? God was king. Humans were in Margot Day in submission to God. We tried to be God. We tried to be Lord. And we started creating our own systems, Babel, Babylon, uh, welcome, 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 Rome, etc. We destroyed the earth. And our attempts to try and be God, to be Lord of our own lives, those repercussions fueled by an enemy of our souls that bred iniquity, transgression, and sin. Those are the things that broke the world and created the hells in which we live. But Jesus came to reverse the curse and he says to me, says to you and to me, I've made the way. Will you step back into your right order? Will you submit yourself to me? Right? Will you repent from your wicked ways? Stop trying to be God. Let me be God. You be my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. And 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 step into that recognition. That's what it means to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what it means to repent. Make sense? Then once you've repented, once you've said, I believe that, you seal that with an action. Now, here's the thing. People want to have an argument about baptism of water, baptism of the Spirit. I believe in a both-and theology. Do both. (laughs) Do it all, right? Why? Because baptism is a sacramental expression, a physical sign of a spiritual reality. So be baptized in water. Why? Because what does this mean? Paul says we're baptized into Christ. This is a practice that we receive from the earliest church, that when you go into the waters, those waters of baptism, that Jordan river you've (laughs) where was Jesus baptized in the Jordan where did Israel step across the Jordan into the promised land same river same water you and I are baptized into the waters we die there my personal world dead with Christ and when I come out of those waters I'm resurrected into the person of Jesus Christ his mission his purpose his life becomes my life and I am saying I am declaring in my baptism that Jesus Christ is Lord that I have died and I've been made a servant of Christ it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me that's what I'm declaring in my baptism so be baptized but that's not even enough because we read in Acts that when they come there's uh, the apostles come they find these guys and they say which baptism did you receive and they say we received the baptism of John and he says no you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and even John says this he says I baptize you with water but there's one who's coming and he's going to baptize you in the spirit and in fire and Jesus says that you need to be born again with water and with the spirit right so we want to be baptized but then we want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what is that it says in in Romans uh, Ephesians chapter 5 it says don't get drunk on wine but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit be being filled with the Holy Spirit Jesus has poured out Acts chapter 1 verse 8 wait you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and then you will go be my witnesses in the world so we confess that he's Lord we baptize ourselves we die and we get raised again into him we receive the power of the Holy Spirit his presence with us abides in us individually and powerfully collectively and then we are empowered by that Holy Spirit we are now dominated by the presence of Jesus to walk as Imago Dei he rehumaned us friends and as we sow to the spirit we no longer sow to the flesh we're no longer slaves to death we are slaves to righteousness we sow to that spirit that same spirit that cries out Abba Father within us and we start walking in our eternal mandated purpose of being image bearers of the king of the universe and we start reconciling this reality with the next one. Does that make sense? And is that good news? And are you ready to repent, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit? If you got an amen and you do it, somebody play an organ. Are we good? If we could just, I love this stuff. I love this stuff. This is the good news. This is the good news. And this is why it's been good news for 2,000 
years. And this is why it's good news for everybody. Because you can imagine what starts to happen when in the midst of Corona-19, a bunch of people who are living in this reality start rolling around their town. They start rolling around their city, living, submitted, repenting from, from their wayward life, submitted to the Lordship of Jesus and showing that to the world through their baptism, filled with the power of His Holy Spirit and enabled to live that out in the resurrection life on this side of eternity. You, if, you, become, you become agents of hope everywhere you go. That's why this matters. That's why this matters. In the next session, <laughs> we're going to talk about how um, salvation is not the finish line. Yeah. So what we've spoken about now is salvation. That's, this is what it means to be saved, friends. You're saved from death into eternal life in Jesus. And I hope you get a sense of what that means right now. But it's not the finish line because it's actually just the starting block. We've been saved for something, for a way of being in the world. And, and what does it mean now to live the kingdom of God that's coming on this side of eternity? So the, the future kingdom that's not yet, how do we live it now? Because it is also now. How do we do that? And to understand that, we're going to go to the table. We're going to go to the Last Supper where Jesus gives us an action. He says, every time you gather and do this, do these things in remembrance of me. And out of that Last Supper, we're going to pull all the Banksy prophetic stuff that Jesus has planted inside of there that give us parameters and boundaries for what this kingdom life starts to look like. Uh, and that's where we're going next.